Good morning, family. It's great to see all of you in this beautiful snowy morning. We are in a series this this, uh, Advent and Christmas that we're calling Dwell. Uh, We're trying as much as is humanly possible to enter into the depths of the incarnation, this great truth of of homoousios, as we looked at last week, that, that Jesus is God and man dwelling with us. And so we're doing that by looking at one single verse, John 1.14, one of the great verses in the Bible that attempts to explain the mystery of the incarnation. And we're just going to take it phrase by phrase for each of the six weeks of Advent and Christmas and try to understand this as much as we're able. So today uh, we get to the second phrase in the verse, and made his dwelling among us, and made his dwelling among us. So let's pray together as we go to God's word. Father, thank you for those words that were just sung to us. Still there is hope. Still there is hope. There is always hope because of the incarnation, because you chose to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. We pray today, this morning, even now, help me, help all of us. We are weak and unable to understand and certainly to live faithfully, and we pray for your Holy Spirit's power to help me and all of us not just to understand your word today, but to respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear God's word, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Family of God, this is the word of the Lord. So in the late 1960s, there was an old van in terrible condition that showed up on a street in London called Gloucester Crescent. And over a series of weeks, this beat-up van inched its way down the street, pausing in front of various homes until it finally came to a halt in front of a home owned by a man named Alan Bennett. The driver and the occupant of the van was a lady named Mary Shepard. Mary Shepard was an eccentric, cranky, filthy, stubborn, homeless old lady. And as Alan looked out over the few days and saw her parked in front of his home, saw her harassed, Uh, by passers-by, saw her um, bothered by police giving her endless parking tickets for violating all sorts of parking violations. He had compassion on her, and he invited her to park her van temporarily in his driveway, which she did, and she stayed there in his driveway for 15 years. (laughs) 15 years. And thus began this amazing relationship between an Englishman, Alan Bennett, and this elderly homeless woman. A friendship so interesting and so beautiful that it became the making of this recent movie, The Lady in the Van, in which Maggie Smith plays the homeless lady, Mary Shepard. It tells the wonderful story of what happens when one person parks their life right in the middle of the life of another person. And what comes out of such committed rootedness. Friends, today we are focusing on this lovely phrase, and made his dwelling among us, 
To dwell means to stay put. This is not a quick visit. It's moving in, staying put, putting down roots, taking up residency. The astonishing truth that we are celebrating in the incarnation is that God has made his dwelling among us, that he has moved in. He's taken up residency among us. He has parked his van among us, and he's not leaving. And this could be one of the most important things that you didn't know you needed for God to move in with you, for him to park his van in the center of your life and to never leave. And that's what we want to look at today, this great truth of his dwelling among us in the incarnation. So what I want to do is I first want to look at the story of the Bible and how in many ways it's a story about God dwelling with us. And then I want to tease out some implications for our life together today. All right, does that sound okay for everybody? Okay, so the first thing I want to do is retell you just very briefly the story of the Bible. I hope that you have been around, if you've been around here, very briefly, Melissa, don't worry. Um, if you've been around here for a while, you, you, I hope that you've been hearing from me again and again that the Bible, this book that Christians read and study and look to for, great, for truth, is not a collection of stories about good people trying to find God. No, the Bible is one big story about a good God trying to find people. That's what the story is about. One grand story, one grand narrative about a loving triune God breaking through into humanity to redeem us and indeed to redeem all of creation. That's what the Bible's about. But there's many ways to tell this story. And one of the ways to tell this story is through the lens of this dwelling God. So if you begin with this story, you begin seeing this God dwelling in the earth. He creates a world and he creates a place in this world called Eden. And there he makes a man and a woman and he moves in with them. He moves in with them with this, in this garden, and it says in Genesis that he walks with them, he hangs out with them, they eat rhubarb together, you know, whatever it is that they did back then before the fall. You know, this, this is God dwelling face-to-face in an unmediated relationship with men and women. That's how the Bible begins. The people of God, in the place of God, enjoying the presence of God. But of course, if you know the story, you know that this doesn't last very long. The story gets bad quick. Evil enters into the world. It skews the heart of men and women, and we turn away from this God. And the first thing that happens is that we get expelled from Eden. Humanity is handed an eviction notice. We were put out from the place of God, put out of the presence of God, no longer the people of God. That's the great problem in the Bible. This is the great problem of your life and mine is that we were made to be the people of God, living in the place of God, dwelling with the presence of God, and yet sin cuts us off from all of those things that we were designed for. That's your problem. But thankfully, God won't give up because he seeks to reclaim his people. And to restore his presence and to remake the earth as a place where he dwells with us. So he pursues. First, he comes to a guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make you and your family my people. And I'm going to give you a place, a land. And there I will restore my presence with you. And when those people are enslaved in Egypt, God rescues them and he brings them out into the wilderness. And guess what? He just pitches a tent right along with them in in that desert. He, he makes a tabernacle. He creates a tabernacle, and there he dwells and lives with them. In fact, an entire third of the book of Exodus is about the construction of the tabernacle. What's the big deal about a tent, y'all? 
It's because it is the place where God now is restoring his presence to live among his people. Again, you know how like when you're a kid and you're playing kickball and then there's like a mess up or something and somebody says, do over. You know that? Have you ever done that? Do over. This is like God calling a do over. God says, do over. He does it with Abraham. He does it now with the tabernacle. He will not let his plan fall to shreds. He is restoring his presence so that he can live among his people again. And that's the way it stays for a couple hundred years. God lives with his people in the tabernacle. They come into the land. He lives among them in the temple. And that's the way it stays. But you know, it's incomplete. Because God's presence is still just isolated in this tent or this temple. The only people who really get to be in God's presence are the priests. It's all mediated through this complicated sacrificial system. So, I mean, it's a far cry from Eden. You know what I mean? A far cry. And so the whole Old Testament is people longing, saying, come, Emmanuel. Would you come? Would you restore what we lost in Eden? Would you come and and be God with us again? Would you dwell with us again in the sorrows and the longing and the death of our humanity? Would you come? And so we see God dwelling in the tabernacle, and then finally, after all these hundreds of years, we see God dwelling in the flesh. John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word made his dwelling is one Greek word, skenao, which means, guess what it means? To pitch his tent. That the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Suddenly we see that all those signs and symbols in the Old Testament were pointing to this. The tabernacle, the temple, these dim reflections of God's presence with his people were all pointing to a person. That Jesus is the tabernacle of God, tenting with his people. That Jesus is the restoration of God's presence. Jesus is the do-over of Eden, the reclamation of God communing with his people again. As we sing at Christmas, please with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God in the flesh. But the story's not over even there. Because Jesus lives among us and he dies for us. He rises for the dead from us. He ascends for us. And then he sends his spirit for us who now intensifies the dwelling place of God among us. Think about it. When he walked among us, Jesus could only be with one place at one time. He could only be with one group of people at a time. If he were around today, we'd all be fighting for him, right? But what Jesus does is he sends his spirit who is now the very presence of himself taking up residency among his people, as Paul writes in Ephesians 22, 2.22, in Christ the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, y'all too, that's what Paul says, second person plural, y'all too are being built together to become, listen, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The incarnate Jesus sends his spirit so that he can permanently dwell with his people in every place on the earth, God dwelling in the church. But that's not even the end of the story because God has big ambitions. God will not rest to just reclaim his people. He wants the earth back. He wants to reclaim the earth back as his own. So at the end of time, what do we see? We see in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is our future, friends. 
That is our hope. That's what we long for in in Advent. The whole vision of Eden restored. The people of God, once again, living face to face with the presence of God in the place of God, the new, restored, renewed, renovated creation on a new earth. Friends, you see the story? God dwelling in the earth, God dwelling in the tabernacle, God dwelling in the flesh, God dwelling in the church, God dwelling in the new earth. This is the great story of Scripture, and this is the story that you and I are invited into. Isn't that beautiful? So what does this mean? If this is true, if this is true, and I believe it is, what does this mean for us? How does it change our lives? I want to just tease out a few implications of this great truth of the dwelling God for you and me, okay? The first, what does this mean for our life with God? I don't know about you, but all of my closest male friendships are with those guys that I lived with, that I lived with. You know, many of these guys I knew pretty well, but when we moved in together and we started sharing life, sharing ramen, you know, sharing laundry detergent, willingly or unwillingly, sharing smells, sharing joys, sharing sorrows, you know, all these things. It's only when you move in and dwell with someone that real relationships of depth begin to happen. You know what I mean? So God could not be more clear that he wants a relationship of depth with you when he moves in with you. The incarnation shows that God went to infinite lengths to take up residency, to park his van in the middle of your life. Jesus says in John 6:56, he or she that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in them. That's very graphic imagery. It's kind of icky, but it's, it's a metaphor. And what it means is that those who eat and drink, who take in Jesus and who believe in him and trust in what he has done for you in his death and resurrection, this is his promise that he's going to move in with you. That he's going to take up residency in you. Can you believe that? He's going, to, he's going to actually park his van in your soul and live there permanently. This is one of the great mysteries and one of the great gifts of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just want to give you eternal life to go to heaven one day. He wants to act the same incarnate Jesus who walked on this earth now promises to live with you, in you, by the power of the Spirit. Paul says it like this. In Ephesians 2, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Listen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Did did you know that? Did you know that Jesus wants to dwell with you like that? To have that kind of intimate relationship with you? To know, so that you can know him and walk with him and converse with him and listen to him and follow him and experience him? Let me ask you this very plain question. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? Some of you just come to church. And I want to push you a little bit. Because this is what he's after. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus in which he has taken up his dwelling in you? How do you get that? Well, there's a couple simple things you can do. First, you just welcome him. You welcome him. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. A few days ago, I was 
doing something, folding laundry or cleaning, or washing dishes or something. I had, and I often do this. I put earbuds in my ear and I was listening to a podcast. And uh, suddenly I, I, heard, I felt a little tug on my trousers and I looked down and there's a kid, one of my kids. And, uh, and she said, Daddy, there's somebody knocking at the door. They've been knocking for 10 minutes. <laughs> sure enough, somebody was standing there at the door knocking and I didn't even hear. And you know, I think, friends, that a lot of you, you sense God's absence you don't know where the Lord is, you feel abandoned by him, but it may just be that you need to turn the volume down. You, he is knocking. He is there. And, and you just can't hear his voice. And he is speaking to you. He speaks. He speaks through suffering. He speaks through hardship. He speaks through relationships of love in which you receive an undeserved gift of grace. Uh, he, he speaks through, you know, sort of a, a longing in your own soul in which you are not being satisfied by all the things that you were casting your soul about onto. He even speaks through his preached word. So you may be today here hearing the voice of Jesus calling you. Don't ignore it. Because all it takes is opening. All it takes is saying, welcome, Jesus. I welcome you in. That's what it means to be a Christian. But it's not just that. It's not just welcoming him in. It's surrendering. Uh, We sang this wonderful song last week, Thou Who Was Rich, And it had this verse that has been ringing around in me for all all week. It says this, listen, Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. What that's saying is, if the Lord Jesus comes in, guess what? He's in charge. This is no ordinary roommate. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. And therefore, like a lot of roommates, he's got an agenda. (laughs) But in this case, his agenda is very plain, and it is to make you new, to make you who he would have you be. That's what he wants to do. I love what C.S., the, the illustration that C.S. Lewis uses in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine your life as a house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first you can see and understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing. You're not surprised. But then he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably. And does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? What he's doing is he's building a different house from the one you thought he was building. He's throwing in a new wing here. He's putting out an extra floor. He's running up some towers, making a courtyard. And then he says this. It's so lovely. He says, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's what Jesus wants to do in you. He could take the filthiest, most wretched, and most broken person and turn you into the most beautiful and glorious of creatures. That's what he wants to do. But it takes welcoming in, and it takes surrendering, saying to him, make me that what thou wouldst have me be. Have you done that? Have you done that, friends? Advent is a great time to do that. Begin the year with him. So that's, that's our life with God. That's what the incarnation means, is that he is committed to move in with you. Second, though, the, the incarnation has a whole lot of beautiful things to say about our life with others. In fact, the incarnation is an amazing resource for human relationships. Look, if you believe in the incarnation, that God is so committed to restore relationship that he was willing to do this sort of radical relocation at great cost to himself, then you, believing that, will become a person who cares that deeply about relationships too, even at great cost to yourself. What did God do to initiate relationship with us? He did not demand that we come into 
his world. Instead, he condescended himself and set aside his own privileges to come into our world. Not demanding that we come into his world, but he came into ours. As Lucy Shaw, the poet, writes, Down he came from up and in from out and here from there, a long leap and incandescent fall from magnificence. That's what the Lord Jesus did for us, all to restore relationship. And when you put this amazing incarnational principle at work in your own life, it means that to love another person means being willing to do what Jesus has done for you, to leave your world and enter into the world of another. And if you've ever been married, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I remember um, years ago working with a couple. I don't even remember who the couple was. It's probably not one of you. Um, but I, there, was a, there was a marital conflict, and it was all about laundry. Laundry. I remember the, the, the guy, you know, he was like throwing his laundry in a basket, and uh, he wasn't lifting a finger to help with the laundry. And it was just piling up and piling up and piling up. And she was resenting him for this, and they weren't communicating, and it was turning into this massive power struggle. And so there was all the laundry piled into the, into the closet, and both of them were pretending that it wasn't even there. Okay, I'm sure that this is not, nothing like this has ever happened <laughs> to any of you, right? Um, so anyway, as I was listening to them and, and unpacking some things with them, we kind of realized that they both had come from radically different worlds, radically different households. He, uh, she, you know, she, he grew up in a home just outside of New York City in which the, mom, the dad worked all the time, and so the mom uh, did all the laundry. That was the way that she served the household. And in her house growing up, her mom worked, and everyone did their own laundry as a way to support the mom. And so here he is on this side saying, my mom loved us so much, she did all the laundry. And here she is on this side saying, my dad loved us so much, he never asked his wife to do the laundry. And it became a power struggle. So what do you do? Well, somebody had to go the way of incarnation. Somebody had to go the way of Jesus and be willing to leave their world and enter into the world of the other. Somebody had to say, okay, you're really different. You come from a completely different background and world than I do, but I am going to set aside my own familiar world and move into yours instead of demanding that you move into mine. And can you imagine a marriage in which both people were trying to do that? In which both people were seeking to are so committed to one another, they were willing to set aside their own worlds, their own needs, their own preferences, their own priorities in order to enter into the world of the other for the sake of love. That's what Jesus has done for us. And this is a principle that doesn't just work for laundry, friends. It works for everything. It doesn't just work for your spouse. It works for your roommates. It works for friendships. It certainly works for cross-cultural relationships. You know, we have a goal here at Third to grow in our cultural diversity to deepen our relationship with the Christian Arabic church, to more faithfully reflect our changing community around us that, in which the nations are more and more uh, moving here. But we won't be able to do that until we put this incarnational principle into action. As a pastor of a mixed-race congregation for eight years, I learned that uh, many people of color, um, especially black folks that were in my congregation, often felt like that they were not heard by the white folks, and that their, that their experiences were not considered to be legitimate experiences. We who are in the white majority often demand that minorities come into our world and accommodate to our preferences and our way of doing things, rather than seek to understand and enter into theirs. And so if people talk about racism or ways that they've been hurt or discriminated against or the way that they've observed 
systemic injustices or something. We often react and dismiss and defend, but the way of Jesus is the way of incarnation. It's to listen and to move into the other person's world and to seek to understand the other's experience and to practice empathy and to live in compassion. Friends, in a culture like ours that is rapidly losing the virtue of civility, have you noticed that? That is rapidly losing the virtue of civility. Followers of Jesus can become powerful catalysts for peace by putting the practice of the incarnation into action. We are not those who seek to be understood, but to understand. We are not those who seek to have our needs met, but to meet the needs of others. We are not those who demand that people accommodate our world, but we are those who in humility enter into the world of the other. And we do this because Jesus did this for us. So that's our life with others. Not only does it affect our life with God, not only does it affect our life with others, but finally it affects our life for the world. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Think about it. When, what did God do when he wanted to save the world and communicate his love to us? What did he do? Did he get out his big divine megaphone? Hey, humans, I love you. Is that what he did? Did he construct some beautifully designed pamphlets or some very clearly written religious tracts and drop them from heaven, equally distributing them throughout the nations? Is that what he did? No. Did he write a big check and give a generous donation for the restoration of the earth? No. Did he take a short-term mission trip and do a little business here and then exit back up to heaven. No, what did he do? He did the most radical relocation in the history of the universe. The second person of the Trinity left all of the privileges of heaven and entered into taking on the limitations of humanity, taking on an ethnicity, a language, taking on a frail and limited human body, all to cross boundaries, enter into our world to restore relationship. That's what God was willing to do for the sake of love. He moved into the neighborhood. He parked his van. And he stayed put. And so as we consider our relationships with the world and with our neighbors, we remember what Jesus said to us in John 20, 21. Listen, in the same way the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. In the same way I incarnated the love of God in a place, so I'm sending you to incarnate the love of God in a place, to live with others, to move into their neighborhoods, to put down roots, to thoroughly identify with others and your neighbors as Jesus has done for us. You know who I saw at the first service is our members, Bob and Elaine Metcalf. And when Bob and Elaine felt led to share the love of Jesus with um, international graduate students from BCU, what did they do? They didn't just start like a, a weekly small group. They found an apartment, an apartment complex where all the graduate students lived. And they sold off their furniture, and they moved into this tiny little apartment with this one bedroom and one, one tiny little kitchen. And they... They, they lived among those that they were called to serve. They fought for on-street parking like their neighbors did. They used a tiny little inefficient laundry machine like their neighbors did. They shopped at the corner stores like their neighbors did. They took on the flesh of their community. They moved into the neighborhood. And friends, as we think about our parish life model that we are about to launch in January, here's a secret. We're doing this because of the incarnation. We want our neighbors to know Jesus you want your friends to know the love and the joy and the justice of Jesus Christ? How are we going to do that? How is that going to happen? 
by getting as many people as we can to come to church, by coming up with some really beautiful, glossy pamphlets about third church and coming up with fantastic, attractive bumper stickers that we can distribute through. Is is that how we're gonna do this? By getting all those people to come here? No, friends, we will go to them. We will enter into the lives of our neighbors. We will wrap ourselves up with their pain. We will take on the problems and, 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 and the sorrows of our neighborhoods. We will infiltrate and weave ourselves into the institutions and the schools and the corner stores of our communities. We will, we will move into the neighborhood for the sake of Jesus as he has moved into ours. Because this is what he's done for us. If he hadn't, we'd be damned to hell. And so if we are people of the incarnation, we are people who give ourselves in total identification for others, as our God in Christ has done for us. I love what J.I. Packer writes in his great old book, Knowing God. He writes, the spirit of Christmas is not being nice. (laughs) We gotta hear that. The spirit of Christmas is not being nice. The spirit of Christmas is not those Christians whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home, making nice middle-class Christian friends, and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways. No, he writes. The Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their Lord, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, of spending and being spent, to enrich their fellow neighbor, to give time and trouble and care and concern, to do good for others in whatever way there is need at whatever cost to themselves. That is the Christmas spirit. So friends, the more amazed we are at the big incarnation, the more power we will have to live out little incarnations every single day. So let me sum up. The story of the Bible is the story of a dwelling God. It's the heart of this verse, that God through Jesus is reclaiming what was lost, that the people of God might dwell in the place of God, enjoying the presence of God. He has come to dwell among us, first in the tabernacle, then in the incarnation, now in the spirit through the church, and one day on the whole earth again. This is our hope. This is our future. God has parked his van, and he ain't leaving. And so what will you do in response to this? Let me just challenge you in two ways, okay? If you are the kind of person who writes these things, writes things down, write these down, okay? I want to challenge you in two ways. First of all, what is one way, listen to me, what is one way you will respond to the knocking of Jesus this week? What is one way that you will seek to dwell with him as he has moved heaven and earth to dwell with you? For some of you, it might mean welcoming him into your life for the first time. You could do that after the service today. For some of you, it might mean renewing your relationship with him because frankly, you've walked away and you haven't hung out with him in a really, really, really long time. For others of you, it might mean talking with another person and figuring out how to nurture your relationship with God because you've never done that before. Talk to me or Ed after the service. What is, for others of you, it'll just mean setting aside time because you're just so busy. What is one way that you are going to respond to the knocking of God this week? Because will you dwell with him because he has moved heaven and earth to dwell with you? Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is, who is one person that you will seek to move into their world this week? One person that you believe that God is calling you to set aside your own privileges, your own power, your own way of doing things, your own history, your own world, 
in order to enter into their world for the sake of love. It could be your spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a neighbor, it could be someone of another race, another background, who is one person. Pleased in flesh with us to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Friends, that is the great mystery of the incarnation, and it is for us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are God with us. Thank you, Holy Trinity, that when we were expelled from your presence because of our own rebellion, uh, you pursued, you came among us. You pursued your people in Abraham and then in the wilderness, and you established your presence in the temple and tabernacle. And then despite the, the years of turning away from you, you came among us in the person of Jesus, and now you send us your spirit that your presence might be with us. And one day you will reclaim this earth and we will dwell with you again, walking with you as we did in the garden. We thank you for this amazing truth, this amazing promise, and we pray this week that we would nurture our relationship with you and that we would seek to enter into the worlds of others, sending our roots deep into the lives of our neighbors, our friends, those that are different than we are. May we cross worlds as Jesus has done so for us. We pray in his name. Amen.